And everybody is saying, we did it. You know, we, we, we had this experience, and we're still here. I, I remember telling somebody in the last, uh, in the last week or so that um, um, many decades ago, when I was just beginning to teach, I uh, was taking, I was teaching a retreat and taking a meal with the teachers in the teacher's room because the, the, the retreatants always eat in silence. The teachers and the staff, they talk to each other. And uh, so we eat in a separate place. And um, somebody, one of, the, uh, one of the, the managers of the retreat um, said to Jack about uh, one of the people on retreat, how is so-and-so doing? That the, the managers sometimes know that somebody comes with a particular uh, crisis in their outside life or in their inside life or particular health issue. How is so-and-so doing? And Jack said they're 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 doing fine. Then the that same manager said, uh, "And how is so and so doing?" And he said, "She's doing fine." And, said, and how is so and so doing? And he said, "He's doing fine." And uh, uh, that very same person asking, "What exactly do you mean when you say they're doing fine?" He said, "I mean that they're still here." And in some way, I think that's the story of our lives, that we're not only still alive in a body, but we're still here and trying to do something with our own minds, you know, that, that somehow we could have been uh, anyplace else this morning. I'm always touched by the idea that uh, on a frosty morning, on a dark morning, on a cold morning, everybody who could have stayed home came here. Because of the, because there's something to do, you know, the, the, the promise of a mind that's um, somewhat ease-filled, that's not reactive. I think that's what we all come from. For, think a minute, because I wanted to talk about that. What are we all hoping about? What are we hoping to accomplish? What do you think we're all hoping to accomplish? Somebody said, why are you going there? <laughs> lift up my heart. Lift up your heart. What else? Somebody said, lift up your spirit. What was the movie that would lift up my spirit? One Giant Leap. One Giant Leap. Thank you. It's an amazing film. Ram Dass is in it. Deepak Chopra. Krishna Das. It's, I just can't stop thinking about it. It just makes me feel so good. Good. something that I would want to own and re-watch. Rent it from Netflix. Uh-huh. Netflix is a new... Okay, One Giant Leap. You know, for a while, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I was saying to people routinely, uh, I, this group of people, I was saying rather routinely, what are you doing these days what would it, how would it be if you turned to the person next to you on the Muni bus and said, um, what are you doing these days to keep your heart afloat? 
and people see Mark is giggling about that. That generally people giggle about that because they say if I turned to a person on a muni bus and said that, they would probably move. You know that uh, that that would label me as somebody who's a little bit odd. But actually, I don't think so. I don't think so because if we don't look. When I did, when I when I proposed to the College of Marin in 1970 that they let me teach a class in Hatha Yoga. They said uh, no because uh, Hatha Yoga is too far out for Marin, <laughs> and I, and I said, but I am not too far out for Marin. I live here. I have a regular name. I wear regular clothing. I'm a regular person, and people will come, and they did. And the same, you know, if you're a regular person and you look and sound regular, and you, I mean, you don't have to say keep your heart afloat. That's a little bit of a you know, it's a metaphor. Well, I said, well, how do you do it? What are you doing to keep your spirits up these days? I mean, every the economy is difficult. We're in so we're in wars. So many people are in difficult straits. Um, it's like which piece of the picture will you look at? The piece of the picture that comes through the media is, I, I think, um, overwhelmingly depressing. Um, I don't. I wonder about that. Do you think that I'm alone in that view, or I think it's actually skewed that way because it catches the attention. It frightens the the watcher into keeping watching, at the risk of having people maybe think odd about me. I gave up listening to the news about two months ago, and it's been tremendously helpful for my mind. I just stopped with MSNBC and Air America and everybody else, and uh, I get plenty of news on the computer, when I, whether or not I want it, because it's there when I turn it on, and I hear about the news, and people tell me about the news, and I can look up things online if I want to. But I began to, I, what I realized in myself was a kind of addictive um, pull towards the news. I realized this morning when we did the precepts, in the early, from the 8 to 9 period when we uh, were doing precept renewal, and uh, the fifth of the precept, the fifth of the precepts was, uh, is, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I want to go here. I'll come back to where I wanted to go. This is an interesting story that happened to me just this week. I got an email from um, a person writing, uh, doing an essay for the uh, Inquiring Mind newspaper, which I like very much, which you've probably all read, doing an essay on uh, what do Western teachers think about and teach about when they teach that fifth precept, undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. In its original form, it quite clearly was uh, avoiding substances that are intoxicants, alcohol and other mind-altering drugs. Uh, I have come, and, and, and in the West now, there are teachers who have different stances on how we should interpret that precept. Um, I like to broaden uh, the precept to uh, 
with an emphasis on the heedlessness, leads to heedlessness. Um, because I noticed that, uh, uh, oh, particularly a year ago, around the time of the last presidential election, I was uh, checking uh, that, that particular website that had um, uh, uh, percentages of well, who's going to vote for who, checking it all the time. Uh, to make sure that my candidate was really ahead. Never mind that it was ahead. He was ahead two hours ago. You have to check again, see if he's still ahead. I was checking. I was listening a lot to the debates on the television. Uh, not that I could vote more than once. I could only vote once, and I knew that I was going to vote. But somehow I got caught up in the fray of crossfire this allegation and that allegation and this effort and that effort. And I found it was very stimulating. And I, I discovered after a while that uh, when I came into, uh, when I came home from somewhere, it was as if the television spoke to me and said, turn me on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I mostly did. And after a while, I began to discover that it was making, it was really <laughs> inflammatory in my mind. And that uh, listening to all the commentators uh, who are you know ed very editorial in their presentation, really editorial in their presentation, was rousing up my mind like it would in a in a soccer match or a football game, or uh, and I didn't feel good from it, and I realized that it just wasn't good for me, so I decided to stop, and I stopped. It it, it was you know you catch yourself about to, but I think it was good for me to stop. And I thought about it later, it wasn't just that it was inflammatory, but that it had a kind of addictive quality. And I think it was addictive because it, it um, the, the way it worked is it frightened me. And you, I, one got to have the feeling, at least I did, that somehow I was in charge and that if I watched more, I'd be on top of everything. No, not true? It's manufactured that way. Why There's no such thing as news anymore. Well, I think so, Ted, but why don't you say that out louder? For people. It's manufactured that way. I mean, uh, you know, there's an old line from newspaper production where they said, if it bleeds, it leads, and that's what got on the front page, and that's the way news is manufactured now. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was clear to me during the election because <coughs> the election was really a two-to-one election, but the way it was skewed with all the different news outlets, they made it look like it was neck and neck all the way because they wanted to generate readership and sell advertising. Mm -hmm. And all news, you know, I mean, you know, all the news outlets are taking political stances now, and there's nothing There's nothing neutral. Right. You know what I began to think about? This is a long time ago when they just started to have uh, the headlines for the evening news would literally show an icon of a smoking gun in the corner, you know, or a body with a with a knife in it, with like a cartoon of a, of a stabbed body. And it'd say, you know, so-and-so stabbing on third admission. Uh, details at eleven, but that was what really caught you. And I thought to myself, it's a, it's, it is planned, and it has the kind of. Uh, somebody said to me recently, one of the editors of one of the Buddhist magazines said it's pornographic. It, it, it seduces you with it because it's titillating, because it's. Um, it's just not a reality show. Yeah, it's because it's a strong, passionate vibe. And you either hate it or love it, or so I, I, I really began to think about it a lot and think I don't need this for my mind. 
Why was I thinking about that just now? Why did I get... Oh, because I got a... I, someone called me and said, I'm doing a story for The Inquiring Mind, and uh, we have five contemporary teachers who have written about how they teach that fifth precept about heedlessness. And we realized that we didn't have a woman's voice. And would you like to write a commentary also so we have not only men's voices and women's voices. And I wrote back and I said, no, I won't do it. First of all, I don't think a woman's voice is any better than a man's voice on that. I don't think you have to have equal gender voices. You can have different opinions in the same gender. And uh, so I said, not for that reason. And I said, the other reason is it's so inflammatory a topic. And uh, any point of view that I have, I have a point of view. But it's so open to contention from people who have the other point of view. And I'm in a time in my life, I wrote back, that I feel too personally vulnerable. I don't mind talking about my points of view with a group that I feel at ease with. But with the to put myself out, you know, like everybody is blogging about everybody. There isn't, a, there isn't, a, there isn't anything written anywhere that doesn't have post your opinion about it. And everybody in the world has gotten to have an opinion about everything. Please write an opinion. Read these opinions. Have an opinion. So I said, no, I wouldn't do it because I don't want. To, I, I just don't want to be in the crossfire. It's not that I don't have views. It's that I don't want to be in the crossfire about my view. And I got a perfectly lovely response back that said, I really understand what you're saying. I completely respect that. Thank you for thinking about it. I actually did write out all of my views and how I teach it. I said, but I, so I have views, but I, I don't want to talk about them in a public place uh, like, um, like the inquiring mind. That's interesting to find that I feel even hesitant. Now, as I tell you, I feel even hesitant in the Buddhist community because I'm not sure there won't be a crossfire of letters. That uh, The kind of... Uh, uh, what I like to think about is civil discourse, thinking, oh, you have that opinion. Hmm. I'll think about that a little bit, uh, and then I'll, I'll see if I can respond out of my opinion, not just shout down yours. It was, it was interesting to find. So I don't normally find myself frightened. I, I wasn't frightened in the sense of terrified, but I was really enough uh, dismayed not to do it. Right, right. You know, it's, like it's like putting yourself out there. I'm very impressed with people who do it. I think maybe I'm a little bit, um, nah, forget that. You're good. Wrong. <laughs> I actually think this is not timidity, it's wisdom. Uh, I don't feel like being in a crossfire. I'm fodder for more discussion. Um, <coughs> Really what I wanted to talk about, what were you going to say, Marty? I was just going to say that uh, something that, in, in a retreat that I just came across, was the Buddhist teaching on having views and having fixed views and, and the story about when he was put on the spot and, and asked to commit himself as to whether he believed this or that. And he wouldn't even say, I don't know. He said, uh, I'm just not going to go there. Because mm -hmm. it's, and, and then you can speculate as to why he did that, but I think 
-hmm. what you're saying, it, mm -hmm. it's basically because it leads people into a whole flap about things that really aren't where we need mm -hmm. to be. See, I think that the particular line that Marty's talking about, it comes up at, very importantly in the end of the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's teaching on universal love. It, as it, the whole of the sutta up to the last five lines says cultivate morality, live a life that doesn't bring up remorse and regret in your, in, and, and, and blame and guilt in your own mind. From that place of relative balance, or really secure balance, you will be able to feel in gladness and in safety, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. And then and it, the last five lines said, one should, um, this, uh, this should be the, uh, uh, the, um, Sublime abiding, serene abli abiding. Uh, Marty's got. I usually have it with me. Uh, okay, there you go. I usually have it in my lap. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. I think that means doesn't continue to suffer. And it's the clarity of vision that I, my interpretation of that, yours may be different, I'd like you to think about it. The clarity of vision is that when people see, everybody's suffering. When we see that, we are moved to compassion towards ourselves and everybody else. Everybody, including us, is making our way from one end of the life to the other end of the life with challenges. Some, some of them you see, some of them you don't see. But nobody does it without challenges. People behave in a way that's, uh, that really brings harm or hurt, and we feel, I really have to stop that harm or, hate or, or hurtful behavior. But how to do it without ill will on that person? How to be able to say, I'll do everything I can to stop this, <laughs> but without wishing them ill, because then I'm continuing the cycle of ill will in the world. And fundamentally, it's the ill will that clouds the mind and leads to destructive behavior. This is said to be the sublime abiding, not clinging to fixed views. These are good, these are bad. He is right, she is wrong. She is right, he is wrong. And the Buddha, in many instances, said, it's not this, and it's not not this either. And they're not going to go there. And how many fixed views I have, which when I am unburdened of them, to say that in a more in a more clear way, when when my mind drops um, a negative opinion of somebody, it feels so much better. You know, in that moment, it feels like a really a relief. You know, it's very hard not to have negative opinions on people. Very hard. Anybody here doesn't find that very hard? <laughs> you know, most of us, I think, are fairly well behaved. We don't express the negative opinions, but we have the negative opinions. And then suddenly, something happens, and for a moment at least, 
that negative opinion is, re is replaced by the opinion. That's a person. They believe that. That's their vision. It's their way that they see it. And it's such a relief. It's like um, in, the, in the poem about the uh, ancient mariner, there's an albatross uh, attached to... Uh, you know, do you, do you know that poem? I, I can't remember it altogether by heart. It's uh, Tennyson, I think, isn't it? Tennyson? Coleridge, sorry. Coleridge. Um, he's the only person. Um, how does it happen? The albatross, he kills an albatross, which is a bird of good luck to sailors. And his boat falls into bad times, and somehow uh, uh, he is parched. I think everybody else is dead. And the albatross is actually hanging around his neck. And at that moment, he looks at the plight of the people around him and prays for them, forgetting about himself and his own agony. And it says that that selfsame moment he did pray from round his neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. And I think about that when all of a sudden I have had some, been carrying around some negative opinion about somebody, and I suddenly see them out of that context, out of that fixed view. Feel what a relief! I don't have to remember that view, because it's a it's a it's a person with a story. This is the person that said something not nice about me, or this is the person that I think slighted me, or this is the person whose opinion held sway over mine, and I think it was the wrong opinion. Whatever it is, but I haven't. But it's it's the person. But it's not the person themselves, it's the person colored by a certain story that they are now labeled with forever. <coughs> and get to see people as people. I think that that, that that teaching about views, I found this morning on my answer machine a, a, a message from uh, Donald last night. I wasn't home last night, and he left me a message and he said, last week I was teaching about views, so I hope you'll prepare. Next and next week, too. He said, so I hope you'll teach about view. I thought, oh, dear. You know, I already had an, an idea of what I was going to teach. But then I thought, actually, it's all about view, because it's always about view. What I was going to talk about is the, the, the ability to see the whole of the, of the view, not a particular piece of it, like to see the whole of the person, not a particular aspect of that person that the mind is narrowed down on. And the whole of what's true in, in, in any moment uh, of my uh, experience or of the world, that we can look at the, the troubles in the world and become really easily dismayed by the amount of troubles in the world, can also look at the efforts in the world to make things different and the people in the world who are committed to making things different. That uh, The reason I think that everybody's heart picked up so much when Nancy was talking about the project of bringing six or seven children every year from Pine Ridge down here to be able to swim a week later, the six or seven children in a world of almost between six and seven billion people many of them in dire straits. But six or seven children are better. And somehow that lifts up the mind to remember that there is that impulse in people to do good for other people. Where I was last night, so I didn't talk to Donald, 
is I was at a, um, uh, a rally meeting for um, uh, uh, volunteers for next year's, um, it was a thank you and a pre-thank you for volunteers for the AIDS ride, the, the bicycle ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles that happens every June. And I was invited to be a speaker to the, and to talk about the joy of volunteerism. <laughs> and I said to them, it's ridiculous for me to be here to talk about the joy of volunteerism because you know it. And you are the people who are out there volunteering. And I am talking hypothetically. I mean, I know myself about you know the pleasure of being involved in helping other people, but you know it. Also, in, this, in a particular venue, I may have other venues, I found out last night that uh, last year there was 70,000 hours of donated volunteer time to the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. So a great deal of money volunteer, uh, donated last year for the AIDS rides and a lot of riders ri riding, but 70,000 hours of volunteer time organizing that the ride. And we talked about, I said, so, I, you know, what will I talk to you about? Because you know about the pleasures of volunteering. So I'd like to somehow make a correlate because I got invited because I, I got invited because, among other things, they ride by Spirit Rock on their training rides every week. They ride from San Francisco uh, out over White's Hill and down the Casio Valley Road and then sometimes out to Point Reyes. So they pass Spirit Rock all the time. That's one reason. Another reason is my son did the AIDS ride last year and will do it this year. So he volunteered me. So that was another reason that they invited me. So I went. I, allowed my, I got volunteered and I went. And then I wanted to talk about the correlation between riding a bicycle and, uh, and uh, what the Buddha taught and uh, about making oneself of making working on behalf of other people which is what volunteering is and is what they're doing there by the riding and the volunteering and also about cycling as a meditation because I really wanted to talk to them about the fact that the the way that meditation works the reason that what they all know about from their personal experience is that when you ride on the bicycle for nine hours you feel better that your mind picks up you swim from Alcatraz, your mind feels better. Uh, first of all, it doesn't wander the whole time. You don't have to have any trouble with wandering mind while, sw while swimming from Alcatraz. And also while pedaling up White's Hill. Because at that point, all you're doing is thinking, pedal, 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 don't stop, pedal, pedal, pedal. So none of the business of wandering mind and inattention. There's no drowsiness. Uh, no uh, planning for the future or the past. It is this hill right now, and the, you know this Alcatraz and that dock. And how am I going to get from here to there? And I I was hypothesizing that the great feeling that people have at the end of um, either their meditation practice, if that's what they're doing, or bicycling or anything else that takes all the attention for a while especially bicycling where you get more endorphins from breathing and uh, the, the, the different chemicals in the body that come from breathing so hard and getting all that oxygen into your tissues and the metabolic pleasure of doing that and the pleasure of having succeeded in something. You know, that uh, that uh, 
the the idea of I'd like to do this and I did it. How many of you remember the children's book, uh, The Little Engine That Could? <laughs> Who read The Little Engine That Could to their family? You know, that, but that, it's, it's really a great story to read. To, you know, and it's fun to read to children or grandchildren because everybody can relate to that. I knew I could. I knew I, I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. And that, that business of accomplishment, to be able to think I could do something. I could ride to Los Angeles. I could, <laughs> I could, I could be part of the support team that puts up and takes down tents every day for a week. They move an army of, uh, what did they have? 250 riders, I think, last year. So they move an army of 250 people from San Francisco to Los Angeles and they have actually two sets of tents. They have, to, they have to have 110 tents or 120 tents to put them up, two people in a tent. And they have two sets so that the, they set up day one and day two. And then after the riders have slept in tents on day one, the, the next day people take down those tents and move them to location three, while the location two people are sleeping here. And so they have two sets that are constantly in motion, meals that are showing up three times a day that are separate for the vegetarians and the non-vegetarians, and a whole, a, a whole medical clinic that goes with them. And uh, so it's really like an army on, on the move with tremendous, tremendous high energy. So we talked about how, how um, valuable it was. And I said to them, is it not true for you that when you're riding along, oh, and they all know if I say, how does it feel to be pedaling up White's Hill? And they say, oh. I say, so when you're pedaling up White's Hill, who is thinking about, I wonder what I'll cook for Thanksgiving dinner or <laughs> Christmas dinner or, you know, I don't think my partner's so interested in me anymore, or the mortgage is overdue, or what am I going to do about the mortgage? These are all substantial problems. And then not the Christmas dinner, but the partner and the mortgage. These are all substantial problems. But for the moment, they are not present. And then when the mind is refreshed, we have often new and wiser <laughs> approaches to what to do about the real problems of life. What will we do about X or Y or the... It's not to certainly say that those problems aren't issues that we really, really need to face and address. It's that often the mind is so overwhelmed by them that it has no ability to have a fresh perspective about it. So as I say, wait a minute, I'll clear my mind, and now I'll think about it. So we're uh, so it was it was actually uh, it was a, a it was a fun thing for me to try to speak in a language that. You know, use the metaphor of the bicycle in White's Hill for uh, uh, the the enterprise of clearing the mind so you could think a little bit more clearly. And I told them that when your mind is focused, the peripheral chatter, Mingyur Rinpoche, whose books I'm enjoying very much these days on meditation, calls... Um, the kinds of uh, random thoughts and uh, and opinions and things that are going on all the time. He says, that's all your neurons gossiping with each other. <laughs> and uh, that when you're, when you're focused, the neurons stop the gossip. And they're all doing this one thing. And the gossip is what 
clouds the mind. I realized at this point that for me, listening to the news and watching it was putting in more gossip on top of my already internal gossip. The other thing that came up that I was able to move as a, uh, as a metaphor that worked for meditation and for being, for meditation in the form that we do it and for being on the bicycle is that the view changes when our attention is focused uh, um, paradoxically in a certain way. It's, it's not that the view gets closed up down to this, but the view gets opened up to a much larger perspective. I mean, in this moment, you see, okay, pedal, 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 top of hill, pedal, 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 pedal. But then when we're not actually in the middle of a great exertion and riding along, when the, when the chatter about <coughs> this or that, or I didn't do this and how I do that and all the things that preoccupy the mind has fallen away, you look up, see, wow, it's really beautiful, you know? It's really even beautiful in the winter here in California. Somebody said to me last week, it was very interesting, in a retreat I was teaching, a person said, you know, I was doing walking meditation back and forth. On the fourth day of a meditation, I was into a meditation retreat some period of time. And she said, you know, suddenly I realized that I've been walking back and forth on that same path the whole week. And I really hadn't noticed how beautiful everything is, you know. My mind is so chattering away. And I've been so trying to pull it together and struggling pulling it together. And all of a sudden, I was just taking a walk. And the chatter wasn't happening. I looked up, and I thought, wow, it's beautiful here. It's really beautiful here. It's really the, the same walk that I've been walking on the whole week. It's really beautiful. Look at this in the wintertime. She said, then the next thought I have, it was... Wow, look at that. You wasted all this time on retreat. You could have been looking at the retreat, and you probably wasted your whole life not looking at that. But the reason I tell you that is that she noticed that too. And she said, look, I have this habit that every time I, I'm having a, like a pleasant moment, and I notice, whoa, I'm having a pleasant moment. That's great. Pleasant. She said, I do something to negate it. Well, this was an accident. I won't have this pleasant moment again. This couldn't possibly happen. She said, I've got a story going that really is an ongoing bottom line story that I didn't know was there. And, uh, you know, it, it seems that I, I'm, I'm looking around, so I think that you got that. Who here thinks they have a, a bottom line story that colors their meeting the life. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, okay. We don't have to say which story. Some people have a story. The story is it's not going to work. Some people have that story. It's not going to work. I'll never be able to do it. It won't work out. This will have a bad end. Um, someone will be mad at me. It won't be good enough. Any of those are stories that you know about? Um, I have several of them. And I'm I'm surprised about them, you know, that when I when I catch myself in one of them. Not that I don't think I have stories, but I'm I'm surprised at how pervasive those stories are. I've been paying attention to them for a long time, and they still have the story. I'm pretty aware of the stories uh, of of potential calamity because they're so bizarre, you know. And I I pretty much watch them. 
So I really don't, I'm really not so trapped by them as I used to be, which is really good. I mean, how many, anybody here has calamitous worries? You know, it's a, it's a thing, it's a thing. And I think it's, a, I think it's, I, I don't, my parents didn't have it. My grandparents, as far as I know, didn't have it. It's a, some neuronal glitch. Uh, but, and I don't know how to, f I don't know how to fix it neuronally. The, the neuroscientists would say, that I am fixing it as I catch it happen and say, no, no, wait a minute, let's not go that way and let's do something else. So maybe 10 years from now, if I'm here, I'll say I used to have that. But it's a thing. It's very uncomfortable. Who, where are the people who put up their hands? Is it uncomfortable or not? It's terrible. It's terrible. And are, are you aware of the fact that other people don't have it? Are you envious of that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Does everybody have a story? Not necessarily calamity, but... I think people have... What do you think? It's a bit of a, kind of a uh, charm, though. I mean, if you, if you imagine it happening, it's the way anxiety works. It won't really happen if I, if I can grasp it in this... And, and you end up spending, investing a great deal of consciousness in imagining it happening. But I think it serves a purpose. I mean, I, I know some people claim it serves a well, what do you think about what Scott said? I think I think actually there is the thought, if I put this down and don't think about it, I will be responsible for it happening, that my vigilance, I'm be worrying about it. Yeah, you're reserving control in some weird... Or you think you are exerting control. You say to everybody who's, uh, who's waiting with you for the bus that's late or the plane that hasn't landed... You say, well, it's delayed. Let's let's step into this coffee shop. Somebody says that, and you think, what kind of a person is this? Going to step in and have coffee when it's clearly some disaster is impending. <laughs> but you know, but to to notice that, and think, wait a minute, this is a mind story. I have been really very interested in looking at the stories that my mind tells about myself, about other people. I, that's where I'm particularly interested in that line about by not clinging to fixed views. Uh, I think about sometimes when I'm teaching and not saying, you know, I, I have the hindrance of fretting. I've been saying I'm a recovering fretter, but <laughs> that also still labels me as something. I said, you know, I, I'm trying to find a better way to say it with respect for the fact that it is a kind of addictive mind glitch. You were going to say something. It's either stories or mindfulness. And she talks about those nesting dolls, how one inside the other, inside the other, just story after story. And then finally you come to the one, the tiniest one that has nothing in it. And it was Deepa Ma who said that? Did you read that in Knee Deep in Grace? Yes. I don't remember it. I'll go back and look at that. That would be good to look at. What were you going to say? So it's been very interesting thinking about how much of my life is filled with you know, dismay about things that never happened. And it just came to mind that John Stuart Mill's comment that the answer to bad speech is not less speech, but more speech. So I, I wonder, and this has been brought up about Buddhism before, so the other, the other answer, so one answer to these negative thoughts is mindfulness, not having thoughts. But the other thought, the other answer might be having more good stories. And when you mentioned, for example, giving up the 
anger or giving up the news and sort of let's let's focus on the on some of the sympathetic joy or, or the loving kindness rather than mm. uh, the shout nots. I'm thinking about that. How would you do that? Because I, I, I think that one of the things that I, I really meant to talk about so we could start talking about Grat here. Gratitude practice is one of the, uh, the ways. Gratitude practice. I forgot all of a sudden your name. Uh, Lee. Lee. Lee is saying that gratitude practice is one of the antidotes to stories because uh, it actually attaches us to something out there. I'm grateful for... Uh, you know, even if it's a, a person or something. How many people think, yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say, like, the, the practice, like, you know, um, conversion, because, like, the nervousness of that for me tends to be pretty aversive. And just to, to replace that with a compassionate response, even just to myself, like, I can see your suffering, and that just drops my shoulders. And if that is, you know, in addition to the gratitude, just like, wow, I can see the suffering, how much this is helping me. Tell me your name. Devin. Devin. Devin, thank you very much. Um, I'm thinking about the fact that one of the gratitude, the, the main gratitude practice I've been having really as a discipline for some years now is Carol Wilson and I uh, exchange emails every day. Sometimes we miss a day if it, you know, if we're, you know, if it can't work out to be near the computer. Uh, and then we don't exchange letters. We send an email that says, today what I'm grateful for is, and uh, the mandate is to find something. And uh, it, it, definite, it not infrequently happens to me that I'll, I'll relate something that, uh, something that I got stuck in, something that caused me grief, something that was going on, and uh, just because you start to write and you say, today was a very difficult day, this didn't happen and that was late and this wasn't happening right, and this and this and this and this. And then all of a sudden, as I'm writing to you, I think to myself, wow, I really had a hard day and I had a moment of genuine compassion for myself. And so I am grateful for the fact that finally I remember that sometimes I could have a bad day and still I could have compassion for myself. So if you start in not forcing yourself, where is the gratitude? You start in from where you are, you know, having a really terrible day. Da, 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 da. And even now I'm writing it to you, it's still a terrible day, and I'm still annoyed at everybody. <laughs> so I'm very grateful that you are there because I know that you will still love me even reading this. So I'm really grateful for the fact that you love me, and you won't tell anybody that I said that. So, uh, and, but somehow or another, if I start from what's true and continue on, it will loosen itself up and untie its knot because that's where I'm looking to do every day. It's been a very, it's been a very satisfactory practice, um, and I miss it when my computer goes down or when I, you know, I'm without my computer for a couple of days. Or I miss it because not even not hearing from Carol, but not having that. It's like I screw my mind on straight. Something happens and your mind gets. Uh, readjusted I it always in my experience often not always often I was I was thinking about the term waking up I was thinking about waking up um, something happened I don't know what it was but I thought about how easy it is to lapse into not only disregard for the world but um, really my own story 
And this morning I was uh, driving out here from Kentfield. I was driving over, uh, over White Hill, actually. And I was a little bit pressed because I was, I was coming for the 8 o'clock class. And I was late, and I don't like to be late. So I'm rushing along, and I was thinking about whatever I was thinking about, but I was certainly thinking about something internal. I was not thinking about the well-being of all beings. I was musing over something or other. And all of a sudden, there was a sound of a paramedic uh, ambulance. And I looked ahead of me, and here comes a red, one of those paramedic ambulances, coming over White Hill, coming from this direction, with its lights flashing and its sirens going, so everybody pulls over to the side. And all of a sudden, you have the feeling, uh-oh, somebody is having a really bad day. And it wakes up the mind. And whatever was, was milling around in there, which was nothing. I can't actually, I, I might not tell you but if I remembered it, but I don't even remember it because it's nothing. It's mostly, it's mostly nothing that we, that I, anyway, it might be different from you, but it's mostly nothing that captivates my mind. It's some little story about something or other that might or might not happen. And it's like going to the movies eternally. <laughs> and then all of a sudden a siren rings and you think, uh-oh, something's really the matter. And then you wake up and you say, whoa, what are you thinking about? Then you think about, I hope that person in that paramedic ambulance is going to make it. I hope they're all right. And then you feel like, oh, now I'm awake. Now I'm awake. But there's, in myself anyway, I have such a humility, a genuine humility, about how easy it is to fall asleep. With the stories on TV or the stories in the email or the stories in my own life, that I make up and tell myself all the time. This shouldn't, and the principal confusing story is this shouldn't be this way. Isn't that? They're doing it wrong, or I'm doing it wrong, but it shouldn't be this way. But it is this way. However, it is. It is this way. In the earlier class this morning, we talked about, you know, the, the, the world situation and how easy it is to fall into views about good guys and bad guys, who started and who could end it, and really about the, the futility of uh, it shouldn't be this way. I was thinking about the, actually, the, the word should is a funny word, like, uh, according to what, you know? It is that way. Uh, I think what we mean, what I mean when I say it should is uh, would that it could be this way, or you know, could the world live peacefully? Could we share what's on it? But uh, uh, we should have human beings should have by now figured out how to do this. They didn't, you know. Here we are, and what will we do now? I think one person at a time. With, you know, one AIDS ride, one Alcatraz swim, one this, one that. I was thinking about the ways of talking about Buddhism, either about ending suffering or choosing happiness. And I was thinking how much vocabulary affects how we think about what we're doing, how, I, how much it affects how, what I'm doing, you know. That uh, in, the, in the tradition in which I mostly practiced, in the Theravada tradition, and in the lineage of Theravada practitioners, 
because there are so many lineages. But in the particular lineage of, of studying uh, from my Western teachers who studied with Burmese and Thai teachers, we mostly learned to bring the attention to what disturbed the mind. So here comes a, a difficult feeling in the body or in the mind. Here comes an ache in the shoulder or a pain in the mind, and we brought the attention to that pain and investigated it. And I really want to say this in a quite neutral way because I don't want to portray that one way is better than the other because I don't think it is. As a matter of fact, I, I don't have a view about that. I think they're different views, both extremely helpful for looking at how to uh, looking at how to understand what's happening, looking at the mind. That if I brought my attention to those things, that this difficult feeling in the body or the mind, if I really, really were to focus on it, by and by I would discover that it would pass or it would resolve or it would dissolve or it would become something else because everything changes. And the, the view that I mostly had for a long time was that that was the way to end suffering, is to really discover by bringing my attention to exactly what it was that was captivating the attention because of its compelling and disturbing nature, that it would, it would be seen in its uh, ephemeral reality and disappear. And uh, I, think that, I think that's a fine way of practicing. I've been reading more and thinking more now about the practices, um, if I understand them right, uh, in the Tibetan lineage of really trying it at all, mostly to bring the attention to the full to the full experience of what's happening, keeping the the focus larger than just exactly what is captivating and disturbing, to the field in which that disturbing event is happening. So here's my here's the mind relaxed, and here comes a negative thought. To be able not to tighten up around that negative thought, uh oh, negative thought, and, but to say, whoa, there's a negative thought in this great space of relaxed awareness, and there it goes. There's a very lovely um, um, instruction that I heard many years ago from um, probably a Dzogchen teacher who said, um, all defilements are, all defilements are um, self-liberating in the great space of awareness. If the mind is large enough and at ease enough, uh, like if a room was, so, if the walls of a room were so far pushed out that when you came in with a coat to hang, on, they, they were, you couldn't reach the coat hooks. So in some sense, if the mind is wide enough and expansive enough and relaxed enough, there's no place for a negative feeling to hang itself and to take up residence there. A story comes in. I'm mixing metaphors terribly this morning, but <laughs> there you go. That's a, I mean, I, I'm hearing it myself, and I'm thinking, if I were my editor, I'd have a fit. Uh, but, you know, I think that we're somehow like, like fish swimming along, 
And here comes a bait. Here comes like a really attractive red lure goes by, and it says, you want to bite me? And if you do, you're going to get jerked around tremendously, you know? But, you know, here I am, and I'm so interesting. How about it? You know, like in Alice in Wonderland, where she falls down that rabbit hole, and it's a, she, there's a bottle that says, drink me, and she does it, you know? Here comes a thought. It says, think me. Think me some more, you know? I say, oh, there's that thought. I didn't chew over that thought for a long time. I could have that thought now. And the thoughts are mostly uh, uh, debilitating thoughts. He did me wrong. She did me wrong. I'll never be good. It'll never be satisfactory. It won't work out well. We don't normally have thoughts that say, wow, you did great, you know? <laughs> Relax. Life is wonderful. Um, <laughs> one of my friends... Uh, I may have told you this. One of my friends has a partner whose practice it is, apparently, to sit up in bed every morning and say, wow, today is the best day of my whole life. And it annoys her because she says, how does he know? You know, it didn't happen yet today, you know. But you think to yourself, that's not a bad way to start the day. Today is the best day of my whole life. Why not? You know, why get up, why hedge your bets? Say, who knows how today is going to be? I hope it's going to be good. But say, wow, another day to live. That's a great thing. Fabulous. Here I am. You know, I could do something today. Imagine that. So I think about the the stories that we have, that, that I have. You might not have stories, but I have stories. But that's so I'm thinking about those two, those two, uh, those two ways of, of looking at the mind, either looking at what is it that captivates the mind, or looking at the field in which captivation takes place. And I don't think it's either or. I really don't think it's either or. I think it's both. And when Donald was talking about thinking about view, I think about view that way, that this is, I think about this as being the expansive view. First of all, the view could be, when we think about it, here I am in Spirit Rock today, alive, in this beautiful weather and the beautiful sunshine. That could be the view. A bigger view could be, here I am in a world that still hasn't fallen out of its orbit, and even though it's imperiled, it's still living at this moment. We're all still breathing. There's enough oxygen. And there are a lot of people trying to make good resolutions to the conflicts in the world, could get up and think that view. That would be an expansive view in which the the difficulties would be the difficulties, but they wouldn't obscure the fact that it's a really an amazing world. And as I said that, I could hear Louis Armstrong singing, It's a Wonderful <laughs> World. We sometimes play that at the very end of retreats when people go home. That's a view. It's a wonderful world. It's a wonderful world full of people who have the possibility and the potential as human beings to um, take care of each other and to laugh. I don't know if other species laugh. Maybe they do. Maybe the, maybe horses pass each other and tell a joke or something. But, <laughs> You know, I, th I think to, to laugh, you really need to have a sense of irony, that it could be this way, but look, it's this other way. Because laughing is always because you've been surprised by something. And you have to have hindsight and foresight, I think, to be surprised. 
So I think only humans laugh. Oh, it's one minute to 11. <laughs> I remember that, and some of you know this, that um, when my friend Martha died, um, on, the, on the day that she really was dying that morning, not long before she died, actually, we're having the last sort of semi-coherent conversation and uh, she was saying something to me. I was standing right next to her bed, and she was saying something to me. And then suddenly she, in the way of people who have a lot of morphine in them and are very sick, trailed off and said some things that weren't so coherently connected to what she just said. And then she caught herself, and uh, she said, um, oh, she said, uh, I'm afraid I'm not making a lot of sense. And I said, not being very coherent. I said, well, sweetheart, don't worry about it. You know, at your stage of the game, it, you're not supposed to be making a lot of sense. She said, well, I'm afraid I'll be boring to you. <laughs> and then we looked at each other, and the two of us started to laugh. <laughs> because you think to yourself, you're dying. <laughs> the last thing in the world you have to worry about is whether or not you're boring somebody else. You know, that... Uh, but that the mind would think that, you know, that the mind would think that, you know. Uh, you know, but that, 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 you know, there we are in our last minute, you know. But human beings do that. Human beings are remarkable. Maybe, I, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll take that up as a practice. I don't know if I'm going to sit up in bed every morning and say today is the best day of the rest of my life. It doesn't seem like a bad idea, but I don't think I can get behind that quite yet. It doesn't feel like me, but to get up every morning and say human beings are remarkable and life is remarkable, and here I am, that might be a good practice. It's not quite as emphatic, but I actually, when I remember, I like to stay in tears and say today could be the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great end to this year with with me because this year, um, God willing, and the creek don't rise, I'll I'll go to France next Tuesday, and I'll be home uh, just after New Year's, and um, I'll be back here on uh, the first Wednesday in January. And with me, and I encourage you to bring friends, will be my will bring my will be my long term good friend and Dharma buddy, James Barras. James has written a book um, called Awakening Joy. It will have its birthday uh, on January twelfth, but it's going to have its pre birthday party here on the morning of January sixth. James will come come and talk about his joy course and talk about awakening joy and uh, so I'm glad we're ending today could be the best day of my whole life because we'll be in, a, in the right <laughs> then I won't have said something terribly melancholy and then have James come with the joy at least we end something up <laughs> uh I am by nature a wee bit on the melancholy, and James is not. So anyway, he'll come with this book. So I really encourage you on that day to bring a friend if you want to, because we'll have 
something of a party that morning, and uh, um, I don't know, maybe J James will surely tell by his book and maybe play his guitar or whatever. So it'll be a, it'll be a late New Year's party, and um, then we'll start the year from there. So I wish you a very happy holiday season, and uh, in all the ways that you celebrate, may there be a lot of light and a lot of laughter. And may all the work that we do together be offered this year and always for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere have the pleasure of support and love, have enough to eat, have enough medical care, have secure housing, be able to live with ease in a world and a planet that could sustain and could take care of all of its people. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. And from that peace, may they all be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.